spend some time throughout this fall semester uh, considering this book, this often enigmatic and confusing book. But as we have found, and, and I've heard from many of you, have said, I never knew there was so much good, so much of value in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, so we come once again to hear what God might have to say to us uh, through His Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and I'll read the first ten verses of this chapter. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 to 10. Hear now the word of God. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Let's pray. Father, help us now. As we struggle with the message of wisdom that you have given us, help us as we struggle with, well, on the one hand seems a dark message, and on the other hand tells us to be happy. I pray that you would equip us with eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that you would open our hearts, give us humility to receive your message, to be changed by it. We need your help. We're grateful that you promise to be with us as we do this now, as we gather in your name around your word. Holy Spirit, do your good work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long after I was ordained as a pastor... I presided over my first marriage and my first funeral, and they were within six months of each other, and they both involved the same person. 
My wife and I had gotten to know Jessica uh, a few years earlier, and she'd become a good friend of ours. And not long after we had gotten to know her, she was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer and began the, the long and difficult fight of trying to rid her body of this disease, and her prognosis was never good. But in that process, she met a young man, and this young man, although knowing that their time together might be very brief, wanted to get married, wanted to marry her, and they asked me uh, to do the ceremony. And so I did. I married them in June, and six months later, I stood with her grieving husband and family as we together buried her, put her in the ground. Not the way I wanted or expected my pastoral ministry to begin. But that experience is one of the reasons I love the book of Ecclesiastes. Because this book doesn't lie to me. This book doesn't tell me that life is all weddings and no funerals. This book doesn't lie to me and tell me that my ministry is going to be all celebration and no grieving, no mourning. That's what we want, though, isn't it? Wouldn't we rather the positive, uplifting, optimistic message of the wedding day, where everything is white and bright and hopeful? The teacher won't let us have it. He brings us back again and again to the funeral. He brings us to death and he says, here is where you learn to live. This is the classroom of wisdom. It is in mourning and grief and the funerals in reflecting on death that you learn to live life. Now why is that? What do we learn from death? Why does the teacher bring us to this message again and again that life is not all weddings, it is funerals as well, and funerals are where we learn? What does death teach us? Well, I want to consider this text where, once again, we're brought to the message, to the reality of death, and we'll find two things. We'll find that death teaches us equality, And death teaches us difference. Equality and difference. So first of all, equality. Verse 2, the teacher lists all of these categories of difference. People in very different realms. The righteous and the wicked. The clean and the unclean. Those who sacrifice and those who don't sacrifice. Those who make oaths. Those who don't make oaths, who don't swear, uh, those who are good and those who are sinners. But the message is not how those people are different. Right? It is how they are the same. It is how they are connected, the righteous and the wicked. The word same is used three times in verses 2 and 3. And how are they connected? The same event happens To all, they are all equal in that they all die. And the teacher calls this equality an evil. 
It troubles him. He says, this is not the way that it should be. It is evil that the same event happens to all. Why? Why does this trouble him? Isn't death just a natural part of life? Why is he troubled? Why does he say the equality of death is evil? It's wrong. Well, think about these categories that he lists in verse 2. They are all ways of saying who's acceptable to God and who's not. Right? We understand righteous. We understand good as opposed to wicked and sinners. But then these other three, clean, those who sacrifice, and those who make oaths. All of these are connected to the worship of ancient Israel. All of these were ways that God's people came into the life-giving presence of God and worshipped Him. They sacrificed. They made themselves clean. They made oaths before God and kept them. So they were all ways to distinguish those who were welcomed into the presence of God and those who weren't. Those who were clean, those who were sacrificed, those who made and kept their oaths, they were welcomed into worship. Those who didn't do those things were excluded. And now think about it. If that's the difference between people who are accepted by God and people who aren't, shouldn't their lives end differently? Wouldn't we expect that those who are righteous, those who are faithful, those who are clean before God, shouldn't we expect that their lives would end differently? But no. The same event happens to all. This is why he says in verse 1, the righteous and the wise and their deeds, they're in the hand of God. But whether it's love or hate, man cannot know. It's the point. These people are in the hand of God, but they cannot look at the circumstances of their life and determine the opinion of God about them. Observable circumstances are not reliable evidence of God's opinion about a person. Because if they were, then those who God liked would go on living while those who God hated would die. But the same event happens to all. Bad things happen to all kinds of people. That's what the equality of death tells us. The equality of death tells us that the circumstances of your life are not reliable communications about how God feels about you. And this is important because in Ecclesiastes' day and in our day, there's a misconception that how our life is going tells us how God feels about us. So if things are going well, God must like me. He must be happy with me. And if things are going poorly, then God must be angry with me. He must be mad at me. He must be punishing me. And the teacher says, no, no, no. That's not the way it works. Because if it did, then those who God loves would never die. And those who God hates would. It's like... It's like expecting the weather report for Fairbanks, Alaska to explain your day in Tallahassee, Florida. 
Trying to read the circumstances of your life in connection to the opinion of God is like that. You're reading the wrong weather report. Your confidence in God's love for you and His care for you cannot ride the roller coaster of your changing experience. Now this doesn't mean that we shouldn't grieve hard circumstances. It doesn't mean that we should not be upset and sad when things go poorly in our lives. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't cry out to God and say, Why? And where are you, God, in this? Those questions are all throughout the Bible. They are good questions. It is that those questions cannot be answered in what we can see. Those questions cannot be answered in what we can observe about our day-to-day existence. God's love for you is not proven in how your day is going. That's what the equality of death teaches us. Now, where does that leave us? Does that leave us with life as this sort of uncertain mess that ends in death for everybody? Is that all that we are given here? Just uncertainty? Well, no, because in death the teacher finds something that teaches us not only equality, but difference. So verses 2 and 3 are focused on sameness. But then when we get to verse 4... We're talking about difference, right? So the righteous and the wicked, they're the same. Those who sacrifice and those who don't, they're the same. But when we get to four, we find something that's different. And it's the difference between a dog and a lion. Right? And understand in this culture, uh, they would have seen lions as this honorable, respectable, regal, powerful creature. And dogs they would have been unlike us. They would not have seen dogs as these warm domestic companions. They would have seen them as dirty pests. So to say that a dog is better than a lion is a ridiculous statement for this cultural context. But the teacher's being ridiculous in order to make his point because what is different between the dog and the lion? Well, the lion's dead and the dog is alive. And he's saying to us, although death is inevitable, it comes to everyone, life is still better. Life, in comparison to death, is better. Why? Verses 5 and 10, there's a repeated message about when you die, knowledge ends. In comparison with life, and you live life knowing that you're going to die. You see that? And it seems to be this sort of morose, pessimistic, stoic acceptance of death. But it's not. Because where does the teacher go with it? Where does he go with, life is better than death because you know you're going to die? Where does that take him? Verse 7, he comes again to this refrain of joy that sounds over and over throughout this book. Just when we are ready 
to give in to this dark and gloomy view of life. The teacher says, no, no, no. That's not the message of death. The message of death is not dye your hair black and put on black eyeliner and listen to really dissonant music. That's not the message of death. The message of death is enjoy the life that you have. Food, drink, family, work. Make every effort, he says to us, to find delight in these good things in your life. So it's like this. Life is is like stepping on stage for a play. And there's no rehearsal. But you step on stage, and the one thing you know about this play is that like everyone else in the play, at some point you're going to have to walk back off stage. And the teacher says, while you're under the lights, while you're in the spotlight, ham it up. Play your role with passion, with vigor. Enjoy the role, the part that you have been given in this production. Listen, I I don't know how this has happened, but, but Christianity in our modern age has become this very tepid, boring approach to life where the the controlling mantra seems to be be careful all right that's what it means to be a christian is be careful don't overdo anything don't enjoy anything too much don't take too many risks here's what it means to follow jesus be careful not the message of the bible Certainly not the message of Ecclesiastes. This book tells us that we should engage life with passion, with joy. That we should take what God has given us, that we should take the tasks that He has given us, the gifts that He has given us, and we should enjoy them. We should do them with energy. We should do them with delight. Yeah, the Bible puts boundaries on us, right? But within those boundaries, it calls us, God calls us to joy, to passion. So sexuality. God says sexuality is limited to the covenant of marriage. And then he says, within the covenant of marriage, do sexuality. Enjoy it. I've joked about finding the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you go past Ecclesiastes and get to the Song of Solomon, you've gone too far, right? There's a book that takes, verse 9, enjoy your wife, into shocking detail. And it's in the Bible. It is inspired by God and given to us. Enjoy it. And not just sexuality and marriage. Enjoy each other. If you're married, take time to enjoy one another. If God has given you friendships, take time to enjoy those friendships. 
If God has given you a job, do that job with your strongest effort. Work hard. Make an effort to do it well, as well as you can. If God has called you to be a student, pursue that vocation passionately. Listen, you come to the campuses of this town and you have incredible access to knowledge and experience. Unbelievable. Unprecedented in most places of the world throughout history. Pursue that with passion. Be curious. Learn all that you can. Embrace the experience with vigor. Parents, Can I talk to you a minute? I know not everyone in this room is a parent, but maybe you can can make applications of this to other realms. Parenting is hard. I have often said it is one of the most confusing, if not the most confusing experiences of my life. It is difficult and it is exhausting. But listen, parents, do you take time to enjoy your children? Have you ever noticed that when you're complaining about your children to other people, they say, what? They're so cute. They're so fun. (laughs) Would you hear that message? They are cute and fun. Enjoy them. It's not all easy. No. But enjoy them. Listen, the Internet is the worst thing that has ever happened to parents. (laughs) Shut off the mom blogs. Shut down those articles that tell you the newest way that you can ruin your children. (laughs) And enjoy them. Feed them a donut and just deal with the consequences later. It's okay. This is what God calls us to. Not this fretful, how am I going to mess this up? That's not the controlling image or message about what God calls us to as a parent, as a student, as a worker, as a spouse, as a friend. The call is to how can I engage and enjoy the gift of living while God gives it to me. You're going to die, the teacher says. Enjoy life while you have it. But that's not all. There is a deeper resource for joy than the acceptance of death. Have you noticed this little rephrase, under the sun? It's one of those repetitions that happens again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. He talks about things under the sun, and it's a way for him to label what he sees. It's a way for him to label what he observes about the world and his life. And so he observes the same event happens to everyone, whether they are righteous or wicked. They all die. That's his observation. But his message is never limited to what he can see. His message is never limited to what he can only observe. So verse verse 7, why can you eat and drink with happiness? Because God approves what you do. Verse 9, enjoy the days of your life. Why? Because God has given them to you. 
So, joy is learned not only in the acceptance of death, but even more in belonging to the one who rules over life and death. In other words, joy is learned not merely by sight, but by faith. By knowing who he, God is and what He has done. That He has approved of you, that He has given you gifts, and it takes more than sight to know that. It takes faith. And think about the faith that we have been given. The teacher of this book only had hints and shadows. But we have the solid reality of God in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. And what does God tell us in Jesus? In Jesus, God gives us the certainty that our circumstances can't give us. Remember, our circumstances can't prove to us that God loves us. But how can we have the certainty that God loves us, that He approves of us? It's in Jesus, hanging on a cross and walking out of the tomb. It is in Jesus that God says to us, I approve of you. Not because of your perfection, not because of your morality, but because of what Jesus has done for you and because you are in Him by faith. Because of Jesus, we can live, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, under the conscious smile of God. That He approves. And that's where we find joy. But there's even more in Jesus that we can know by faith in Him, not only that we are approved by God, but God shows us in His Son that the grave, Sheol, verse 10 talks about, that's the grave, the grave is not the end. Yes, death happens to all the righteous and the wicked, but death is not final for those who are in Jesus. They will be raised to new life in Him. So when I stood with that grieving husband and that grieving family and we planted Jessica, who died at 26 from cancer in the ground, we grieved, but we grieved with hope. Hope that her funeral wasn't the last event for her. It wasn't the end of her story. But in her funeral, we looked to another wedding. The wedding when Jesus raises up His church and clothes her in white and marries her and sits down at a feast to celebrate His work of renewing all things. That's the joy that death can teach us. Death teaches us that we are all dust and to dust we all will return. It teaches us to enjoy the life we have been given. But even more, if we will see it by faith, death can teach us that God loves us because of the promise that He will raise us up and He will make us new. Will you walk by faith rather than sight?
Let's pray.